The world that we live in is very different than the world of, let's say, the 1970s. We have so much technology at our disposal. We have the internet. We didn't have that when I was a kid. We have laptop computers. We have smartphones. We have online banking. And with the rise of so much technology and our reliance upon technology and our interest in social media and the internet, we've actually seen new vocations created in response to the culture within which we live. So, you know, in the old days, you could be a physician, you could be a teacher, you could be a plumber, whatever you wanted to be. But now we have some additional opportunities available for this new generation. For example, you could have a full-time job as a social media influencer. Many of you know what that is. A social media influencer is a person that essentially makes their living online, influencing other people's decisions as to what they would buy. So social media influencers, they'll, they'll set up an account. They will often have sort of a unique uh, appeal. They're often very beautiful people, very handsome people, very trendy people. They're well-liked. They seem very socially adjusted. And they will start to promote certain products, review certain products that they think you might like. So you're like, hmm, should I buy this online product? Well, I'm going to go see what my social media influencer has to say. And if they've given it a five-star review, then they have influenced you and you go out and buy that product. But if they said, no, I tried it, it's a bad product, then you sort of move on to the next item. Now, you can be a social media influencer and have a large following and be right or wrong, be moral or immoral, have a godly character or an ungodly character. None of that really matters. Primarily, what you need to concern yourself about is your image. If you have a good image and people are attracted to you, oh, isn't she beautiful? Isn't he such a hunk? I get that all the time, by the way, <laughs> but only from my wife. Then people will be attracted to you and they will want your opinion. They will take your opinion into consideration. Now, if you think about it, Leadership is largely about influence, is it not? There's a lot of definitions that have been created over the years to try to define what a leader is. But fundamentally, a leader is an influencer. But when it comes to biblical leadership, biblical categories of leadership, how to be a Christian husband, how to be a Christian employer, how to be a Christian pastor, how to be a Christian youth worker, we very much concern ourselves with character. Not just competency, but we very much concern ourselves with character, with why you do what you do, with how sacrificial you are, with who you are. You could be drop-dead gorgeous or mildly homely, but be an effective influencer and leader if you have the character qualities that God has called us to incarnate. Biblical leaders are influencers. Now we've been studying as a church, the book of second Corinthians for several months now, and we still have about two more weeks or so before we finish this book. And today we're in chapter 12 verses 11 to 21. And we want to answer, ask and answer the question, what are the characteristics of responsible Christian leadership. 
so this would be, these would be characteristics that I as a pastor should take into consideration. If you're an elder in our church, a deacon, a deaconess, a youth worker, small group leader, a mentor, a children's worker. You're a Christian husband that wants to lead your family well. You're a Christian that wants to bring your values to bear on your employees at work. We need to think about this. What are the qualifications of biblical, biblically sound Christian leaders? Now, let's suppose you're here today and you're like, ah, I came to church today and this isn't relevant for me because I'm not a leader, I'm a follower. Well, let me just say that every topic that we could possibly address in scripture that deals with a specific group of people is also beneficial to those that are not in that group. So for example, if you're a wife and you're not a husband and we were to do a message on what it means to be a biblical husband, you should also be interested because you're going to want to keep your husband accountable to those qualifications. Or if you're looking for a future husband, you would be interested in knowing like what What are the biblical qualifications of a husband? So the same is true of leadership. Even if you're a follower, not a leader yet, you're you're a newer Christian, a lot of people follow you. This is helpful for you to understand too, so you know what to look for in Christian leaders. And you never know, one day you might be one. So this is a message for all of us. And we we do need to acknowledge, of course, that apart from God, there is no God. And apart from God, there's nothing that's perfect. So when we talk about biblical qualifications for leadership, we're not expecting that any one leader is going to be absolutely perfect in all of these things all the time. All of us will fail. But more often than not, we should be successful. And more often than not, we should value these qualities in our own lives. So as we enter into the text, here's the first thing that we learn about in verses 11, 12, and 13, and that is a proper use of authority. So when you talk about leaders, you're talking about authority. There's no such thing as responsibility without authority. In fact, if you give someone responsibility and you don't give them any authority, you just get a frustrated person. Anyone who has authority has to have, anybody who has responsibilities has to have a commensurate amount of authority to do the job that they've been given. And the same is true in Christian ministry. So let me read for you verses 11 through 13, and then we'll kind of pull this apart a little bit. Paul writes, I have been a fool. You force me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to those super apostles, even though I am nothing. So just pause there, a little background. Paul had written a previous letter much earlier to the Corinthian church, and it was essentially a rebuke. He had to kind of call them out on some stuff. This was known as Paul's painful letter. It's not in the Bible. It was written sometime between first and second, sometime in between first and second Corinthians, but he'd written them this letter of rebuke, sort of calling them out on some behaviors. They took great offense to it. Some did. And when some other apostolic figures came to town who were much kinder and nicer and gentler, they gravitated to those men and they started to trash talk Paul. So Paul, throughout 2 Corinthians, has to defend himself. And he doesn't defend himself for the sake of himself. He defends himself 
himself for the sake of the Christ that he represents. So prior to this passage, Paul had spent some time boasting, and he's speaking sarcastically, boasting about all of his qualifications for apostolic leadership. And he's doing it tongue in cheek. So when he starts off here and says, I have been a fool, he's speaking sarcastically. You force me, for I ought not to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to those super apostles, even though I'm nothing. In other words, you put me in a very awkward position where because you wouldn't listen to me, but you were listening to these false teachers, I had to come forward and kind of remind you of my resume. And it's like awkward. You made me look like a fool. It's a foolish thing for us to even have had to talk about. So he reminds them of that. And then verse 12, he reminds them of his qualifications as an apostle. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost, utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So apostles is one of many kinds of Christian leadership. In the first century, an apostle was a person that had seen the risen Christ, had been commissioned by him to go and basically give revelation to God's people. And the, one of the affirmations of apostolic leadership was the ability to do things like raise the dead, heal the blind, heal the lepers, and so forth and so on. Now, God still can and does on occasion do miracles, signs, and wonders in the world today. And he might use people to do that. But in the first century, it was a unique situation where he actually employed apostles to do that in order to kickstart the church. So this is Paul's area of leadership. We can still apply the principles to any area of leadership. Verse 13, for in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Again, we have some sarcasm there. So we'll go back and pull this apart. But before we do that, I want to acknowledge that history is littered with good leaders and bad leaders. With people who have served for the sake of those that follow them and others that have lorded it over and abused people that have followed them. But nevertheless, God is the one that instituted in this world authority structures. So if you're a parent, your five-year-old is not in charge. And if they are, things only go bad. Doesn't mean they're less of a human than you. Doesn't mean you can abuse them. But you're the parent. So you have authority over that child until they reach the age of adulthood and then they leave the house and go on their merry way and eventually become parents and they have authority over their children. And this is the way families are structured. Husbands are called to be Christ to their wives, to lovingly, conscientiously lead their wives, knowing that they will one day be held accountable for that. Pastors are called to lovingly and courageously lead the people of God, not to apologize for it, not to compromise for fear of you know, not being liked, but to lead their churches in accordance with scripture. Police officers are called to enforce the law of the land insofar as it reflects divine law. Governments are appointed by God for the sake of public justice. This is why in, first, or in Romans chapter 13, it says they carry the sword. Their basic job description is to be agents of justice in the world. 
Now, in any one of those categories, a person can step outside the boundaries. A husband can abuse his wife. Governors can abuse their citizens. Police officers can abuse their citizens. Pastors can abuse their flocks, etc. Parents can abuse their children. But that aside, God, it is God's desire for us to be under authority. Now, here's an interesting question. When did God come up with the concept of authority? Did he just sort of invent it? when he created us and created this world? No, we see authority structures within the triunity of God himself. So the Orthodox Christian view of God is that God is not three parts in one. God is three persons existing for all of eternity in one being or one essence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Father is holy God and the Son is holy God, and the Spirit is holy God. But the Son submits himself to the will of the Father. And the Spirit is commissioned and sent by the Son and submits himself to the will of the Son and the will of the Father. Does this mean that Jesus is less God than the Father, or the Spirit is sort of a lesser God than the Son? No. These are three persons, not three gods. Three persons eternally existing in one essence. They're all equal in their godness, but there's functional superiority in their relationships. So within the triunity of God, before the world was even created, there was submission being demonstrated in the perfect unity that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Think about that. You know why this is really important? Because in our broken humanness, when we desire to be in charge, we often have this idea that submission is kind of a dirty word. I don't like authority. We have this negative view of authority. All authority is bad. I want radical, unfettered freedom to be my own man, to do what I want, to say I don't want to be under anybody's authority. This is spiritual immaturity. The scriptures call us to be under authority, and sometimes we are the authority, and sometimes we are followers of that authority. Now, I'm, that's all sort of a, a background to, to help us to understand that wh why Paul says what he says in verse 11. He says, you've made me the fool. In other words, why do I even have to, why did I even have to justify to you my authority as an apostle? You see what this has created? Why did you put me in this situation where I had to come and say, okay, guys, you're misbehaving. If, if you forgot, Jesus kind of appointed me as a, an apostle. Remember that whole road to Damascus experience and remember the miracles that I performed and remember all the times I came and visited, to you, visited you free of charge and served you of my own accord. And, and this just feels awkward. It feels awkward. And so even at the end of this cluster of verses, he says sarcastically, oh, forgive me for this wrong. What wrong is he referring to? The, the fact that he had come and even served the church free of charge. He actually took financial support from other churches so that he could come and serve the Corinthian church free of charge. He's like, oh, forgive me for serving you for nothing. It's sarcasm. And it's intended to serve as a bit of a subtle rebuke. So on one hand, Paul is reminding the church of his authority and the need for authority and the fact that we shouldn't have to apologize when we're put into a position of authority to lead other people. 
But at the same time, he's also reminding them of his heart as a shepherd. He wasn't just about being the man in charge. He was a shepherd to the people that God had put under him. In verse 12, he talks about performing different miraculous works among them with utmost patience. That's a shepherding word. And then in verse 13, for in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I did not burden you? I I only blessed you because I love you. So I think we see here a nice balance of Christian leadership. Christian leadership is a balance of authority and an an unwillingness to allow one's office to to be diminished or thrown aside. But also it's motivated from a shepherd's heart whereby you care for the person or the people that are under your care. So many of you are in positions of responsible leadership. Not apostolic leadership, but we have pastors in the room. We have elders in the room. We have youth leaders in the room. We have Christians here that employ other people and desire to live out kingdom values in their place of employment. Whenever you're responsible for other people, there's some lessons that we can learn from this passage. One is to guard your office, not to allow people to diminish your office. If you're a Christian parent, guard your office. Don't let your children trample all over you. If you're a pastor, guard your office. Don't allow people to diminish this gift that God has given to the church. If you are a husband, guard your office. Exercise your responsibilities productively and conscientiously. Now, at the same time, you need to be careful to monitor yourself for fleshly motivation. And we know what that's like. You know, don't, don't allow it to go to your head. Don't allow your role as a, a leader to sort of cause you to walk around with, you know, your, 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 your chest stuck out. You know, I guess who I am. Did you see my name tag? I'm an elder. Don't you see my white hat? I'm the boss on this job site. Look at me. Go get me some coffee, Nave. So we want to guard our office, but we don't want to use our office, offices, our responsibility to feed selfishness in us. Secondly, we should administer the gifts that God has given to us that are commensurate to our office. So whatever area of leadership you're in, God is going to God is going to gift you and equip you to be able to do your job. Administer your gifts. If you're a leader, here's a helpful tip. Lead. If you are uh, a boss, a supervisor, an employer, take charge. If you're a teacher, teach. But you know what society will do? It will pressure you to flatten everything down because society doesn't understand that authority is a blessed thing. In many people's minds, they they can't wrap their mind around, oh, how how can we be equal and how can we be, 
you know, all in this together and in the church, how can we all be brothers and sisters when there's people that are actually kind of in charge? Like, how does that work? Well, a great illustration of that is, again, to go back to the idea of parents and children. We, we're all children at one point. Some of you still are. And we understand that, that when, when a child is told by their parent, look, eat your vegetables, go to your room. We're not saying you are not as human as me. You are not as valuable as me. We love our kids and we exercise authority over them, not because they're lesser humans, but because we know there's different roles and it's necessary for us to function in different ways. So guard your office, administrate your gifts, and then serve with no expectations. Paul just demonstrates this so wonderfully where he's, he's going around and yes, he's receiving financial support from some of the churches in order to do his ministry, but he wasn't the kind of guy, well, I'm not going to do that because I'm not getting paid for it, or I'm not going to do that because that's outside my job description. He went and ministered to the Corinthian church, even though they did not acknowledge him particularly well or bless him or undergird him financially. So what is it that keeps a person leading and leading and leading when they're not necessarily receiving anything in return? Understanding the preferred future, you're pushing your followers toward, being driven by biblical values and ideals like self-sacrifice and humility and truth, and kingdom-mindedness, understanding that you, as Paul understood, are actually under Christ. You're an ambassador for Christ in the areas of authoritative leadership that God has appointed you to. So lesson number one is a proper use of authority, balancing the guarding of the office with the heart and concern for the people that follow you. And again, we should not apologize for any of that, but rather stick to it and allow God to use us as he sees fit. And I was thinking this morning during the first service as I was observing one of our key leaders, won't mention their name, but key leaders use their gifts. And they've been in our church for many, many years. I thought, you know what makes this person a, a great influencer? Consistency. They're faithful. They're consistent. Because they're faithful and they're consistent, people trust them. Now, they also do a wonderful job. They happen to be very gifted. But their consistency is what helps people to trust and lean in. And that's what we need to commit ourselves to in an increasing way. These are things that can't just, I'm going to commit myself to them for the next month. When people look at you and they see you properly using the authority that God has given to you, husbands, elders, whoever you might be, People trust you more. So this leads into the second lesson, which is a proper motivation for ministry. Paul goes on to teach this church. He says, here for the third time, I am ready to come to you and I will not be a burden for I seek not what is yours, hint, hint, your money. It's not why I'm here, but you. I'm here for you, not for your money, but for you. For children, listen to this illustration, for children are not obliged to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Huh? Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and I sent the brother with him, probably the unnamed brother that we met earlier in the book. 
Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? What was Paul's motive for ministering to the Corinthian church? He helps us to understand his motive by giving us this, this illustration of parenting. You know what it's like if you're a parent. You have this little baby and it requires all of your attention. It doesn't do the dishes, doesn't change its own diapers. It doesn't help the laundry, doesn't cut the grass. You're just pouring out 100% of the time. And this goes on for about two decades. If it goes on beyond that, you have a problem, mom or dad. But it goes on until that child reaches adulthood and then eventually they leave the nest. And if God so blesses, they have their children and the cycle repeats itself. Parents don't have, they don't leave Met Hospital with their new baby and they're like, I get a chore list for you this afternoon. You know, we, we understand that part of parenting is you just pour out, you just pour out, you just invest, you invest, you sacrifice, you sacrifice some more. And when you die, if you're a responsible parent, Proverbs talks about this, we leave an inheritance for our children. They don't leave an inheritance for us. Our financial capacity is passed on to the next generation and they either capitalize upon it or sadly at times blow it. <laughs> That's the way that life works. So even, even in, in our, our current society, we don't think about this a lot. But so much of what we have is because of the hard work of our forebears, people we've never even met. Our grandfathers, our great-grandfathers, our grandmothers, our great-great-great-grandmothers who sweat blood and tears in order that we might benefit from them. So here we are, hundreds of generations into into uh, humanity. And we just receive and we receive and we receive so much from previous generations. And then we will contribute to that and we will pass that on to the next generation. That's how life works. Paul uses this analogy to describe Christian leadership. Christian leadership is motivated by a desire to bless those that come after us. This means that part of being a leader is you give more than you get. It's just part of being a leader. So if you're like, you know, I'd like to be a Christian leader. I'd like to be a boss. I'd like to be a husband. I'd like to be a pastor. I'd like to be a leader because it's going to do something for me. Well, you're, you're going to be blessed by it, I'm sure. But that's not going to sustain you over time because over time you're going to learn, man, this is, this is kind of a thankless job. Any parents in the room that have at times thought, this is kind of a thankless job. Any pastors, leaders, church leaders, this is kind of a thankless job at times. That's life. And Paul acknowledges that, that he is giving more than he is receiving, just like parents give more than they receive. But at the same time, he, he bristles at this accusation that he was in it for himself. Verse 16, but granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. He said, come on, give me a break. Why are you accusing me of that? In what way did I take advantage of you? We understand that sentiment. If you serve other people and then they you know, accuse you of being in it for yourself, it's, it's kind of kind of offensive. So Paul applies this to leaders in verse 15, where he says, if I love you more, 
Am I to be loved less? What's the idea there? Well, if I am pouring out my life for you, am I to be taken advantage of? Am I to be, you know, tossed aside? Am I to be accused of wrongdoing? He didn't want to allow them to continue to throw undue accusations around because they weren't fair. He had poured his life for this church. Titus had poured out his life for this church. Some unnamed brother had poured out his life for this church. So what are some things for us to consider? Well, for those of you that are leaders, if you get more than you give, something's wrong. Leadership is about influencing, pouring out your life for other people. And yes, there will be times when people thank you and bless you or pay you or support you or send you a card or buy you a gift or whatever it might be. But much of what you do will go without public recognition. But what motivates us to continue to lead is the knowledge that God has equipped us for it and God is pleased with our service. So may that be an encouragement to those of you that wield influence over other people. For followers, if you're being led, unless you're being led down the proverbial garden path, being led poorly, being abused, if you're being led, don't make it difficult on leaders to lead you. Give them a bit of a break. Let them do their job. Let them exercise their responsibilities properly. When you accuse leaders of wrongdoing, make sure that it's accurate and not just based on some desire to you know, trash talk people who are in positions of authority. So we have a discussion about proper use of authority, the discussion about proper motivation. And then the third thing is a proper commitment to holiness. Every Christian leader should be committed to holiness and the holiness of the people that follow them. Paul goes on to say, have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? You know that boasting I did earlier in the book where I laid out my qualifications and what I had done and you know that rem those reminders I just gave you about how I poured out my life for you? He then asked the question, do you think I'm doing this to defend myself? It is in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. So even as Paul defends himself, he reminds him he's doing it because he wants Christ's presence to be with him. And he loves the people that he's speaking to. He calls them his beloved. But he does identify three fears that he has for the church. We have the word fear mentioned twice here, but really there's three areas that he's concerned for the church. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish. In other words, you know, one of the problems in this conversation we've been having about my authority and your role and you know that offense you had to my painful letter and all this stuff we've been talking about, it's creating a relational divide between us. I'm concerned that when I come, like things aren't going to be the way they should be. I'm not sure I'm going to be super eager to see you. You're not going to be super eager to see me. You see what happens, folks? When people have authority and they exercise their authority properly and people push back, nobody benefits. It just relates, it results in relational breakdown. 
and the follower feels kind of awkward when the leader shows up and the leader feels kind of awkward when the follower shows up and everything's just kind of yucky. And Paul acknowledges that. Then when we don't have our authority structures in place and people aren't properly responding or leading as they should, nobody really benefits. It's just kind of awkward for everyone. So that was one of his fears. His second fear relates to relational sin, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. All sorts of relational sins will start to be committed between people if authority structures and followership structures break down. And then the third area where he's concerned is verse 21. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. In other words, and I may have to mourn over many of those humbled in the sense of Paul will come and say, oh man, my ministry has not borne fruit. And that, that kind of, it's not good. My ministry isn't borne fruit. I feel kind of inadequate because I poured out all this energy and preaching and letter writing. And what have I been left with? He says, and I may have to mourn over many of those who have sinned earlier and have not repented of impurity, sexual immorality, and the sensuality that they have practiced, sort of sins of the flesh. So lest his defense, just breaking this down again, lest his defense seems self-serving, he reminds them that it was actually due to his passion for Christ that he even confronted them in the first place. That's the teaching of verse 19. And then in verses 20 and 21, we have those three categories of fear. The first is fear of mutual embarrassment, the breakdown and demise of relationships, an unwillingness to capitalize on the discipline that he was trying to offer them. By the way, maybe we should talk about that for a little bit. You know, church discipline is not just, you know, those awkward moments where someone's committed some heinous act and they have to be confronted and brought to the church. The elders need to all be involved. Church discipline is, is kind of like driving your car. You ever been driving down a, a, a relatively straight road and, you know, your, your hands are on the steering wheel and more or less you're not moving the steering wheel, but you kind of are. You're making these micro adjustments because the road might slope to the left or the right. Maybe your wheel alignment's a little off. And if you take your hand off the steering wheel, your car will you know, drift one way or the other. And it might take a long time or it might veer very quickly, but it'll eventually end up in the ditch. So when you drive, even though you may not always be conscious of it, you're kind of making all these like micro adjustments to stay on the path, headed in the direction you want. This takes place all the time in the church, subconsciously or consciously. You know, through our preaching, through the way we interact with each other, when we sort of call each other out on things, church discipline is a lot about just disciplining one another, correcting, little micro-corrections along the way. This is a blessed thing. Paul was trying to discipline this church through this painful letter, and they resisted it, and it, related, it resulted in relational breakdown. So we should embrace church discipline. One of our Protestant forebears, John Calvin, said one of the marks of a true church is church discipline. Why do we avoid church discipline? Because sometimes it's like, it's not worth it. I don't, I don't want to get flack. I don't want to have that awkward conversation. It feel, someone might say I'm judgmental. But it's necessary for the building up of relationships. Then we have relational sin, quarreling, you know, like arguing over stuff that's nonsense, jealousy, comparing ourselves to others. Why'd they get that role? Why deny? Why'd they get a raise? Why deny? 
You know, why did the girl say yes to them and not to me? Anger. Again, there's righteous anger, but unrighteous anger is self-serving anger. Hostility. Slander. Making up lies about people. Gossip. Spreading truth that no one needs to know about. Conceit. Pride. Arrogance. Disorder. Sowing discord. Breaking relationships. Being nitpicky. He was concerned about that. And then fleshly sins, sort of a collection here of sins related to the flesh, impurity, sexual immorality, sensuality. You know, I've said this before many times, and we all know it, just we don't talk about this in church a lot. God was the one that created our sexuality. God did. Not playboy. God created it. It was God's idea. God created the idea of men and women. God created us with hormones. God created us with an interest in the opposite sex. It's God's idea. So God's not anti-romance, anti-sex, anti-body, anti-flesh. But in a sinful world, these things become misused and corrupted. And sometimes it leaks into the church. So Paul calls the church out on this. We can be reminded of passages like 1 Corinthians 6.20. This is kind of a helpful reminder where it says, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Who owns you? Well, I own me. No, that's your problem. You don't own you. You're owned by God. And the eternal son shed his priceless blood for you. So if you understand that as a Christian, you realize, okay, so... That's my problem. Sometimes I long for sexual sin because I I want the pleasure. I want the gratification. But I need to remind myself, I was bought with a price. My body belongs to God. And this helps to motivate us to honor him with our bodies. So all of these sins flow into the church and into our lives when we dishonor authority structures And when we do not follow the advice of those that are trying to point us toward the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's be a church that values proper authority. Let's evaluate ourselves to ensure that we're properly motivated in ministry. And let's commit ourselves to personal holiness for the honor and glory of the King that sent his son who shed his blood so that we might be eternally redeemed in Christ.